Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Brainwaves, hear the world differently. Bringing community mental health to you, raising awareness and challenging stigma. Tune in to 3CR Community Radio, Wednesdays at 5pm. Melbourne's Drive Time Radio Program, featuring community organisations, powerful stories and information. Find us at brainwaves.org.au. Proudly sponsored by Wellways Australia. Hello, welcome to Brainwaves on 3CR 855am, 3CR Digital Radio and 3cr.org.au. My name is Kaylin, and today from the Brainwaves team we have Susie who will be doing our interview today. I would like to begin by paying my respects to the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation who are the traditional custodians of the land on which I am coming to you from today. Land where at Brainwaves we tell our stories and land where the traditional custodians have told their stories for many, many years before us, and continue to tell their stories. I would like to pay my respects to Elders past and present, and acknowledge all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners who are listening today. As part of our series on dementia, and specifically Alzheimer's disease, we're really pleased to welcome Professor Michael Valenzuela to the show. He came to my attention via an ABC report into his research on resistance weight training and reduction of brain shrinkage. There will be a link to that report in our podcast. Professor Valenzuela has a truly extensive academic and scientific background, including being Professor at the University of New South Wales, former senior consultant to the World Health Organization and so on. However, essentially, he's a pioneer in work on healthy brain ageing across fields such as biomedical innovation, research and neuroimaging. The professor has won numerous awards in medicine and medical research. He's an author and has even developed two apps regarding brain health. The current hat Michael wears is co-founder and CEO of Skin to Neuron, a new Australian biotech company, and he remains a visiting professor at the University of New South Wales. Hello, Professor, and welcome to Brainwaves. Firstly, Professor, can you briefly describe Alzheimer's disease and how it differs from other forms of dementia? Yeah, it's a really good question, important one to understand right from the beginning. So dementia is the clinical syndrome where a person's brain function, like their memory and their attention, things like that, uh, starts to decline and they can no longer do their day-to-day activities. So I could, for example, diagnose someone with dementia by talking to them, talking to their family and finding out what they can do now, what they could do before. So it's purely a clinical syndrome or a clinical problem. So that dementia could be caused by Alzheimer's or Parkinson's or one of a number of different brain diseases. So when we talk about Alzheimer's, we're strictly speaking talking about the brain disease um, that's uh, leading to or causing the dementia. When it gets complicated is that Often, for most people, in fact, with dementia, there's um, multiple of these diseases. So the most common 
um, cause is actually Alzheimer's plus vascular disease in the brain. Mm-hmm. So the two occur very, very commonly. Um, in other words, it's rare to have a truly pure Alzheimer's disease in the brain causing dementia or anything else. So that's why it becomes tricky and difficult for, uh, when it comes to diagnosis to really pinpoint what's the cause. But when it's Alzheimer's, you know, that that typical disease is about the production of sticky, unwanted proteins in the brain, kind of clogging up the brain. Um, and somehow or another, that is toxic to the brain cells themselves. And at some point, those brain cells start to shrink and then even die off. So that when someone presents with the dementia syndrome, Um, they've already lost quite a few, even millions of brain cells, particularly in the hippocampus, which is the memory centre of the brain. So that is why very early on you'll have, say, memory problems, quite severe memory problems. That may be what triggers going to a GP or a specialist for a diagnosis. And so what's happening there is that the hippocampus has come under attack, the memory centre, and it can no longer do that memory function that it normally can do yeah just as a matter of interest um is it possible to have those plaques in the hippocampus and not have uh symptoms of dementia yeah so that's kind of one of the complicating and and confusing aspects is that those two things the alzheimer's disease and dementia they're related but it's not what not a one-to-one correspondence Mm. so as you alluded to you can have the disease in the brain and never know about it. You would not have dementia. You may not even suspect you've got any cognitive problems. And for whatever reason, um, for example, if you're in a research study, um, someone might do a brain scan or if you donate your brain to science and they look at it and they say, oh, actually that person had all this Alzheimer's mm-hmm. disease, but they never knew about it. So there was no link between the disease and the dementia. The reverse is also possible that you can have someone with the dementia, so they've got this clinical problem, but then when you start looking, you can't see any of that pathology, the disease. Mm. So it's very far from being a a nice, clean, one-to-one correspondence. But in general, you know, the the disease puts you at very high risk for the the dementia syndrome, and there there is some kind of link there. Okay. Now... I'm interested to know what drew you to this line of research. And as I said in the introduction, I saw you on the ABC and you were talking about, in particular, resistance training and reduction of um, cortical shrinkage. Can you tell us a little bit more about those two factors? Yeah, I mean, I've been researching in and around Alzheimer's for my whole career. Um, As to how I got into it, it was almost by chance because my first, very first, Um, research job was as a research assistant for um, professors Henry Brudati and Paminda Sachdev, who at the time had just launched a a very large um, vascular dementia study. And so Mm. they needed a new research assistant, which happened to be, be me. And as part of that job, I was a research psychologist doing cognitive testing in older people and I was actually going to their home and doing these cognitive tests, sitting down with them. Um, And having grown up 
without any extended family. It was kind of, I was a young person. It was the first time I was really exposed to older people in a meaningful way. And I, I found them com- completely and utterly charming. I found the process of doing the tests really very interesting. I had countless cups of tea and biscuits all, all around mm. Sydney. Mm. Um, and then the subject matter just drew me in. Why is it that, you know, when someone gets a stroke, then you have sometimes that stroke related kind of problems with with say speech or mobility or, or vision and so forth but then after that you can some people develop a dementia syndrome and that the biology because we were doing brain scans at the same time that but that link between biology and function and meeting all of these old people just made ended I ended up being completely fascinated by the subject and the people yeah. And then, you know, as you get older, then like many other people, dementia starts to affect your wild, wild, wider family um, um, and then it becomes more personal. Um, and so then it became not just an intellectual exercise but actually something I was very committed to do something about. Mm. Um, and so that really drew me into where the low-hanging fruit is, which is prevention because... You know, there's a saying that, you know, a drop of prevention is worth, you know, mountains of actual treatment. So if you yes. can prevent it in the first place, it's so much more powerful. Um, and when I started, there was no real appreciation of the link between lifestyle factors and the risk for dementia. And that's become a bigger and bigger and bigger theme in the in the global research landscape. So that now we understand that around, say, 30 to 40% of dementia is actually due to modifiable lifestyle factors. So there is something we can all do as individuals and communities and societies to reduce our risk for dementia, and it it boils down to the things we already know are good for us. So, you know, having, um, doing uh, a bit of exercise in your life, um, following uh, the so-called Mediterranean-style diet. Um, keeping your brain active is incredibly important, particularly after retirement. So having some plan to replace the um, mental challenge and, and stimulation that you would have gone from your work with something else post-retirement. And social activity is really very important. And that's where COVID's been a massive challenge to people and their brain trajectories, you know, looking into the future. So all of these things are incredibly current. And as part of that, uh, I was a chief investigator of a trial called the SMART trial, which was led by Maria Fiatoroni-Singh at Sydney University. And and that was specifically looking at what is the, um, the benefit to both brain function but also with imaging, looking at the structure and function of the brain from resistance or strength training versus a computer brain training versus the combination or, 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 or a placebo. Yes. So that was a kind of was a sophisticated trial um, where we recruited um, more than 100 older people from around Sydney and split them into these groups and then monitored them for a number of years. And the result that you were referring to was, well, what does strength training do? How is that special? 
and it appears to have a quite unique, powerful effect on the brain. And what, what that study showed was that if you do six months of strength or, you know, um, resistance training, um, like pumping iron type thing in, in, a, in a coached, supervised manner, so you're really focusing on the correct program and the correct exercises, um, as you can expect, it's good for your fitness, it's good for your muscle strength, but it also leads to overall cognitive benefit compared to not doing that exercise. So there's a benefit to your brain function. Then we looked at the brain over the period of doing exercise, but then very interesting, we looked at the brain up to one year after stopping the exercise because that's often how these things kind of happen in the real world. You might get interested in doing a program, actually do the program, then it stops and then people start to slowly get back to their the, the previous habits. So we were interested in saying, well, what happens long-term after stopping the training? And that's when we saw that um, the hippocampus, that memory centre that I was talking about, um, had this delayed benefit that there was zero shrinkage in some part wow, yeah very little shrinkage at all compared to quite noticeable shrinkage in the absence of that training so mm-hmm. it seems like the, the the type of results that we see in mice you know, at one level seems to translate to um, humans in that mm-hmm. exercise is not only good for your body but it's good for your brain Yes, and specifically, so this resistance training is has greater benefit than just like walking or swimming. That's a great question. Look, we, in that study, we didn't do a kind of what we call a head-to-head comparison, you know, to be able to say mm-hmm. is this better um, strength training versus some other type of exercise. So we don't know, you know, you know for sure whether if you had to choose which one to do. At the moment, the the best advice is that a combination of exercise, some type of aerobic exercise like walking, yes, has been linked to benefits to the brain. But the resistance exercise has very specific metabolic um, anti-diabetes effects uh, for your general health. So that is why that is recommended. But it may also have this unique benefit to the hippocampus, which we haven't seen with aerobic exercise yeah. after stopping the training. Yeah. So um, I think the best idea and the best recommendation is to do a little bit of both every week for both your body yeah. health and, and brain health. Yes, and I, I do understand that there's already been linkages to complicated or more complex exercises, for example, playing table tennis or dancing, where you've got to utilise your brain, whereas when you go for a walk, you're just walking. But with resistance training, you'd also be using more of your brain because you've got to focus on um, different movements. Would that be part of it? Could be. Um, I think with resistance training, and this is part of the key that I was talking about, this was um, in a coached or supervised setting. So there was, by definition, social interaction. Yes, yes. You had a trainer. You had a coach there that was, you know, monitoring what you're doing and making sure that you're getting 
you know, the weight that you're lifting is getting higher as you're getting stronger. So there was this definitely another dimension. It wasn't just you walking around by yourself. That's right, yeah. You know, so if you're going to walk, walk with friends. Um, If you're going to do some physical activity, try and make it a social thing um, to to add in that other brain dimension to it. Yeah, it's a shame, really, because I structure my whole walk around not meeting or bumping into anybody, so I might have, I might have to change. Yeah, um, at a meeting at the end or something. Yeah. Uh, are there, look, are there currently any evidence-based pharmaceutical treatments for Alzheimer's? I, I, I found this drug, citicoline, which apparently is linked to reducing memory loss and reducing glaucoma, but I, is there anything that's really you know, highly empirically evidence-based that is known to reduce the impact or even treat? Yeah, so there, there are treatments for Alzheimer's out there in, in uh, funded by Medicare and publicly available um, with evidence about them. The acetylcholine esterase inhibitors, which is the long-winded name, is a class of drugs where... Um, acetylcholine is a neurotransmitter in the brain, particularly yeah. um, highly present in the hippocampus. Um, and so when you get Alzheimer's, you because you're losing neurons, you're losing acetylcholine in the hippocampus. And so what these drugs do is they try and flood the brain with more of this neurotransmitter so that the signals can kind of get through from one neuron to another. Um, So they've been around for mm, decades, like 20 to 30 years, this cold class of drugs. And, you know, the bottom line of these is that they work in subpopulation of people with Alzheimer's for a a subpart of the time. So they can be helpful in in some people. About a third of people respond to this drug. Um, and essentially what it does is slow the rate of decline, you know, and then after about a year, then those effects tend to peter off. So it's, you know, you're, you're gaining, say, a year of, of of some mental function compared to if you didn't take them. Okay. Um, so they definitely have a place and doctors are well now experienced with using them. The drawbacks is that, you know, they only work a little bit um and and there's there is side effects because for example the gut system works on the same neurotransmitters and so you can get you know unpleasant um gut side effects so there is a role for them they've been around for a while anyone with alzheimer's should speak to um, their treating doctor if they if they're appropriate but you know for the longest time we've needed more We've needed something yes. much more effective and much more powerful. And so that's why there is, you know, billions of dollars being spent around the world on trying to develop new treatments and hundreds, if not thousands, of clinical trials happening right now. Yeah, and this is a really good segue into the research that you're doing with Skin to Neuron as CEO um, because you're looking at different aspects, um, more bio how would you describe it like you're we're we're aiming for a completely new and original take on this whole issue because 
those type of drugs that we were just talking about, cholinesterase inhibitors, they're trying to um, uh, fix this signaling problem between neurons, but the neurons are actually missing. You know, there's, as I mentioned, at the, by the time of diagnosis, you will have lost, unfortunately, millions of brain cells just in the hippocampus. Um, and so I would say that most of the research field is trying to interfere with that Clark production process or the tau tangle process, trying yes. to interfere with it, stop it, slow it, change it, modify it. The problem is um, there's now been so many trials that shown that they can, yes, be very effective at removing plaques from the brain, but people's dementia just continues to get worse. Mm. So there's a question mark um, around whether that whole hypothesis or the theory can actually deliver clinical benefits. Um, so there's a lot of activity around that and actually a lot of controversy. What we're doing with skin to neuron is something completely different, which is to try and fix or redress that fundamental problem of missing neurons. So if you're missing millions of neurons, how are you going to just how are you going to replace them? And so that's why we're why we're developing a new form of cell therapy. Um, it's so-called autologous or a personalized cell therapy. So what we are working towards is a person with Alzheimer's donates a bit of their skin tissue. So we harvest it from them. From that skin tissue, we can, our company has the technology of identifying um, a type of, let's call it a stem cell, a precursor cell, a cell that has the ability to generate um, neurons, brain cells. We expand and amplify these in the lab up to millions and millions of cells. Then um, the final part of the therapy would be to inject those baby neurons, for want of a better word, directly into that hippocampus, which is missing the brain cells. So this is the approach that we've now done in several animal studies, including people's older dogs that get dementia as well, which is a really interesting thing in and of itself and has been very successful. So we have a, a veterinary trial that was published very recently showing the majority of the animals actually got their cognitive function back. Yes. So no longer demented anymore. And apparently canines uh, have similar Alzheimer's effects to humans. There's a big commonality. Is that right? Exactly right. That's, yeah. that's kind of why we, we designed this canine trial um, as the kind of strategic heart of the whole program because the Alzheimer and the dementia, these two features, is quite similar in dogs. So you get the syndrome as well as the biology. Um, so just so your listeners are clear, this is a research. We're still in research mode and we're hoping and planning to launch the first human trial here in Australia in 2024. And this so would be a world first. Absolutely. This would yeah. be a world first using our unique cell technology, um, trying for the first time to rebuild those lost neurons in the hippocampus and get memory function back and therefore get people's quality of life back. So yes. 
that is very much, I guess, where I'm coming from is trying to get that meaningful change to our Alzheimer patients, um, the things they really care about, which is about being able to do their day-to-day things and, you know, um, and, and have quality relationships with people. So that's kind of our ethos and we're really doing something very new and original, so I'm very proud that that is happening here in Australia. Yes, it's wonderful, absolutely wonderful. Um, as um, many of our listeners, they'll either be directly or indirectly impacted by this disease, are there any other in- interventions you can re- recommend both regarding early detection, for example, genetic biomarkers, um, various different types of tests, and practical interventions? You've already referred to socialisation, diet, and physical exercise, but what about mental exercise um, to, re- to sort of reduce the impact of this illness? Yeah, they're all good questions. Um, talking, first of all, about yeah. diagnosis. I think the real key word there is timely diagnosis as opposed to early diagnosis. Um, you know, there are technologies around, for example, fancy brain imaging which can alert a person as to whether or not they've got this Alzheimer disease process started in their brain, but they're not demented now, and they may never get dementia. So you, in other words, you would be detecting a disease for, of, for, with the sole value of causing you anxiety and stress and making you wonder, what can I do? So there's no point in early diagnosis purely in and of itself. When it becomes important is when uh, you need the diagnosis in order to start changing uh, how you're going to manage your life. So definitely when people are starting to have issues, problems, worries, their families noticing things, that's when it's very important to get an accurate diagnosis. And it's highly underdiagnosed at that time. So people shouldn't get, I think, um, overly focused on purely getting testing for the sake of it, you know, as like a screen. There's no good evidence that kind of screening for Alzheimer's disease in your brain is necessarily useful. But once you're worried or have concerns about your how your brain is functioning, that's when it's good and timely to get a proper diagnosis. And there are increasing technologies to make that more feasible. So rather than get an expensive and hard-to-access brain scan, very soon you'll be able to get a similar diagnosis just from the blood. So in other words, those same sticky proteins that we see in the brain, tiny, tiny, minute amounts of them are floating around in the blood and the technology is starting to get there where we can detect them in the blood or not. Yes. But that, that will be here soon. And will be, I think, very, very practical and useful. Um, the second part of your question, well, what can we do uh, practical measures um, to either prevent or, or better manage uh, the disease? Um, for prevention, you know, I was talking about lifestyle. You said, what about mental activity? It's so important. Um, you know, unfortunately, there's very compelling data to show that cognitive Um, ability starts to decline faster after retirement 
and increases your risk for dementia. So I, there's a really strong message, I think, there for listeners that if you're about to retire or just retired, you need to think very carefully about your brain health and making sure it's staying active, challenged, you know, you're meeting, uh, you're still socialising, you're still talking to people and learning new things. It's really very, very key. Okay. Unfortunately, we're, as always, running out of time so quickly. Um, but just, I just wanted to really briefly mention that I read a study, um, just the abstract by King's College Lund- uh, of London, about people who'd suffered really severe COVID and linking it to um, reduced memory and damage to the hippocampus. So that's something that I'm sure you'll be keeping an eye on as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, there are studies all around the world. Next month I'll be in Barcelona talking to a group that is specifically examining whether there is this link and what does it mean for the future. That's right. Um, does it mean there's going to be more problems in the future than, than in the past? So it's something absolutely is on the radar and and happy to maybe talk again once there's some more insights and clarity. Yeah, and, of course, that could also be connected with a lack of socialisation during COVID as yeah, well. Yeah, that's, apart that's from, my big worry too. Yeah. yeah. Um, Professor, how can our listeners make contact with you or say if they wanted to participate in trials or generally follow your work? Um, the main protocol is the website, which is skin2neuron.org, O-R-G. Um, there's lots of info there and they can sign up for our newsletter and they'll get totally up to speed on what's happening and what's going on. Okay. Thank you very much. Well, it's been wonderful to have had you on our show, Professor. I'm sure your work will give hope to many who are having to deal with Alzheimer's both as a diagnosis and for those whose loved ones have been diagnosed. We wish you and your team every success in your current and future research. And we look forward to hearing more about Skin to Neuron as you succeed. Thanks, Michael, for coming on the show today to share with our listeners. Thanks, Susie, for today's interview. And a big thank you to Evan for helping with editing today. We hope that everyone enjoyed today's show. You can find more of our shows at our website, brainwaves.org.au or on the 3CR website, 3cr.org.au, or on Spotify, or wherever you happen to listen to uh, your 3CR podcast. If you have a story to share, or if you'd like to send us some feedback or suggestions for future shows, please email us at brainwaves at wellways.org. Thanks for listening, everyone. Stay safe, and we'll be back next Wednesday at 5pm for another episode of Brainwaves on 3CR. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast, produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.